Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of the show. And today I'm joined by Greg Knuckles. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for the time being. Greg, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? I am doing great. We got a lot of good stuff to cover in the show today. Uh, Before we get into that, if you like the show and you'd like to support it, there are many ways you can do that. You can like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get the show. Uh, You can join our email newsletter by going to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. We send out a research update every single Wednesday. Uh, Really nice information straight to your inbox. Uh, You could check out our online coaching program. We have coaches who do one-on-one virtual coaching. You can learn more about, uh, you know, that service and who our coaches are by going to strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. You can use our discount code to get a discount on your supplements over at bulksupplements.com. Just use the code SBSPOD. It'll get you a 5% discount. Of course, you could subscribe to the Mass Research Review. Uh, Many of you did during our big Black Friday and Cyber Monday sale. Thank you so much for the new people who have joined us. Um, And thanks to the old people who have been with us for all this time. Uh, Mass is now, I think Mass is entering what, like the seventh year? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, entering uh, volume seven here. So some folks have been with us for a really, really long time, and we sincerely appreciate that. Uh, Another thing you could do is check out Macro Factor. It's the diet app that we co-designed, co-developed with a really talented team of folks, and there is a free trial, so you can check it out, take it for a spin, and see if you like it. Um, All right, so... Let's do some business here regarding the podcast schedule over the next few weeks. Um, Obviously, last week, for the first time ever, we did a re-airing of a prior episode, and that was for a very good reason. Like I mentioned in the introduction last week, that was basically kickstarting a string of shows that are going to lead us into the new year. Obviously, new year is a really big time for fitness. People start putting together some goals and some plans for the upcoming year. And so we wanted to tailor our content in December and January to make sure that we were kind of focusing on topics that were related to that so we could be hopefully uh, as helpful as we possibly can. So last episode was a re-aired episode of uh, a really long discussion, really detailed discussion about goal setting. Uh, Today in this episode, we are going to build upon that. We're going to do a very brief review of goal setting Uh, And then we're going to talk about motivation and behavior change. And I'm going to explain how all those concepts kind of work together. Goal setting, motivation, and behavior change. Um, And then in the future, we've got uh, a number of shows that are already planned out. We're going to be talking about how to actually structure a weight loss diet, how to uh, incorporate things like mindful eating, how to incorporate cardio for weight loss, and what kind of effects you can actually expect from doing that. Uh, And we're also going to talk a little bit about the importance of sleep. So we've got a whole line of shows that are planned out and ready to go. And today, like I said, it's going to be all about motivation and behavior change. But before we get into that, uh, I did want to talk briefly about the most recent Stronger by Science article. Um, So one of the big misconceptions in the world of evidence-based fitness is that meta-analyses basically trump everything all the time. Um, so you'll, you'll see people engaging in chatter uh, somewhere between a discussion and an argument on the internet about some topic. Someone will say, yeah, but look at this study where, where X, Y, and Z happened. And someone will say, 
get your pathetic randomized controlled trial out of my face because I have a fresh PubMed link to a meta-analysis, which is at the top of the hierarchy of evidence, and this discussion is officially closed. Um, and in my article, I push back against that a little bit. I, I wouldn't say I push back entirely. Um, conceptually, I do think that there's a reason that systematic reviews and meta-analyses have a well-earned spot at the top of the hierarchy of evidence. But the hierarchy of evidence, there's an underlying assumption there, which is that all these different forms of evidence have been gathered or conducted effectively, right? So the, the hierarchy of evidence kind of goes out the window if, if you're comparing two forms of evidence uh, and one is just riddled with errors and the other was done quite proficiently and effectively. So I wrote an article, which was originally for the Mass Research Review, which is also posted on strongerbyscience.com. And the title is, scrolling up, um, Meta-Analyses are the gold standard for evidence, but what's the value of gold these days? Uh, and, and so the reason I called it that is because I was reviewing a paper by Cadleck and colleagues. Uh, their paper was called With Great Power Comes Great Responsibility, Common Errors in Meta-Analyses and Meta-Regressions in Strength and Conditioning Research. So the general idea was, you know, yeah, we've got this hierarchy of evidence and that's good. Uh, and I certainly don't uh, have major issues with the, the general uh, structure of the hierarchy of evidence, but... Like I said, the, the underlying assumption there is that these meta-analyses are at the top of the hierarchy, uh, and, and we assume that they've been done very proficiently and are not, uh, they don't contain errors. And the main point of this really, really good paper by Cadleck and colleagues is that we really can't rest on that assumption in our field currently, that when you come across a meta-analysis, that it will be done very proficiently and it will be free of statistical errors. Um so in my article, I talked a little bit about, I started by talking about the origin of meta-analyses. Um, had you ever heard that story before? Uh, I think you were the one who told it to me. Okay, that makes sense. I, yeah. I have known you for a while. <laughs> uh, we talk about this shit. But so um, I, I always find it really interesting because meta-analyses, like I said, they've kind of gotten this reputation in our little bubble in evidence-based fitness of being indisputable, untouchable, beyond reproach. And I think it's helpful historically to look back at where meta-analyses originated, where they came from. Um, and also, I, I thought it was an interesting look back at discourse in science. Um, I, I think we often have... Um, I, I think a lot of folks make the assumption that back in the day... There were all these very great thinkers who were very calm and academic in terms of how they approach questions, always very even keeled, even temperament, and they wouldn't get in the social media dust-ups that we, that we indulge these days. Um, I don't know why we make that assumption, because they were humans and we are too, and man, uh, the, the first thing that you would call a contemporary attempt at meta-analysis really was just a giant beef between Almroth Wright and Carl Pearson. Um, and the beef was about the typhoid vaccine, uh, the vaccine for typhoid fever. Um, it was just tearing through the British military. And uh, 
Almroth Wright said, hey, I've got a vaccine for that. It's pretty cool. I really like it. You should too. Um, and it started kind of trickling out. And the thing about Almroth Wright is that he hated statistics. Um, not just like, oh, I don't like doing it. He thought statistics, and bear in mind, we're talking about turn of the century, like early, early 1900s. Mm -hmm. He thought it was a waste of time. He, he basically, I'm putting words in his mouth, but it was kind of like, it's just kind of an annoying fad that will go away eventually. And even if it doesn't, I just don't have a use for statistics, for in inferential statistics. Yeah. Uh, now, Carl Pearson, you'll probably recognize his name from the Pearson correlation coefficient. Um, so he thought statistics were cool, <laughs> which is why he pioneered a, a great a great number of uh, you know theoretical concepts and calculations and, and procedures. Uh, little tip: don't read literally any biographical information about Carl Pearson. No, uh, no, no, no. Or Ronald Fisher. Uh, just if someone was a famous statistician more than like 20 years ago just just leave it alone you don't, don't need to don't know. even look up the name of the department they chaired it yeah. was it wasn't the statistics department or yeah. the mathematics department yeah so I'll, I'll just leave it at that if you know they say don't meet your heroes don't read about your heroes if they're statisticians yes just leave, leave it alone and say hey math works and that's good but anyway so wright and pearson were having this big dust up back and forth calling each other names, you know, saying the other one was full of shit. It was a very entertaining exchange that was that was taking place publicly and people were trying to intervene and be like, "Hey guys, the, let's relax. We're we're talking about healthcare here." But nonetheless, people went, eventually said, "Hey, you know, Carl Pearson, please do something with all of this data about the typhoid uh vaccine." And like I said, Wright uh was was doing a lot of this work of actually administering the vaccine. Uh, but he hated statistics, so he did not take records in a way that would be suitable for a thorough, robust statistical analysis. It was it was really chaotic and disorganized. So Pearson tries to throw it together, stitch it up, and say, you know, I don't have computers. I also don't have very good data. But anyway, here's a meta-analysis that I just came up with. Yeah. Um, the reason I bring that up is because I think if you were to dichotomize the outcome, was Pearson's analysis correct or incorrect? Of course, it's more complicated than that. But I guess I would go with incorrect, honestly, because he was like, eh, we probably shouldn't rush to, to you know, really escalate the use of this vaccine. The vaccine was effective. It, mm -hmm. it was quite effective. It ended up saving a lot of people's lives. Um, and so I like to bring that up because it gets down to the, the general, con aside from being interesting and watching people get in like a Facebook argument a hundred years ago. Aside from that, um, I think it's interesting to to kind of reinforce the point that a meta-analysis is only as good as the actual calculations being done and the underlying data, right? So yeah. if you meta-analyze crappy data, you're not going to get a good result. Or if you have great data and you use a really heavy-handed or erroneous approach to calculations, uh, you're also not going to get great uh, great information from it. And, you know, Pearson, he did what he could. But like I said, computers didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So doing a meta-analysis was quite an undertaking in 1905 or it was somewhere around there that he was doing this. So that's where we started with meta-analyses. It's not like they start from this, uh, like, oh, we had all these problems, couldn't solve them. Somebody came through and answered all these questions perfectly. 
Um, but let's switch to the modern day here. Um, what what Cadillac and colleagues did in this study was they looked at the 20 most cited meta-analyses in the field of strength and conditioning, and they basically screened them for common statistical errors. Now, I would have to assume, I'm speculating here, that they basically did this project because they read enough metas in this field and said, I kind of know what I'm looking for. You know, like, I, I think that these hypothesize, oop, light bulb went out. I think that these hypotheses, uh, were, this will be a cool, a cool are, are, are we just going to keep rolling with mood lighting? Uh, yeah, I say, I, I think so. Sure. Why not? People yeah. are going to love this. Keep it um, loose. Yeah. We just had a light bulb go out if you're listening <laughs> on uh, audio only platform. So the mood has changed very much and now it's, it's really dark and shadowy and, and, uh, quite mysterious, I would say. Um, but anyway, so they look at the 20 most cited meta analyses in strength and conditioning. And like I said, I speculate that they kind of knew what they were looking for already. Yeah, it's it's hard to read too many metas in our field without recognizing that there are a, a handful of, of pretty pervasive problems that, that crop up a lot. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that I like to highlight when talking about this particular study is they went for the 20 most cited meta-analyses. So I would argue personally that they kind of stacked the deck against themselves in terms like if they were just trying to cherry pick and say, oh my God, look at this high number of errors. You probably wouldn't go for the most cited because, uh, you know, citation metrics, that's a conversation of its own. You know, it's not a reliable indicator of quality, but uh, it's not like they were looking for the crappiest, you know, most ignored meta-analysis that somehow snuck through the crappiest journal in the field, right? They they weren't like scraping the bottom of the barrel. They just said, let's go to the ones that everybody's citing and using for their arguments. You know, so I, I've thought about this a little bit more, and I'm I'm actually not sure I agree with that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that that is a very reasonable initial assessment to make, but I, I think... I think you and I are both of the perspective that the average quality of meta-analysis in our field is trending upwards. Like it's, yeah, you know, like the, you you still you still find some some stuff that probably shouldn't slip through through review. But like, I mean, it's it's even noticeably better now than it was two or three years ago. Yeah, and, and when you look at a lot of the years on these on these metas, um. Like, j just going down the list, starting with the most cited and working down 2009, 2012, 2004, 2010, 2009, 2014, 2016, 2012. Uh, like, there there are a couple in here from 2018, but nothing thereafter. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, think that, I think that these are probably better than the average meta-analysis was at, during the same time period. But I, I, I do think the average meta-analysis getting published today is probably of a similar quality or slightly better. I would say it's probably similar. So, so like, I think the way that I summarized it in the article or the way I framed it is what I see in meta-analyses today is, first of all, they're more numerous in quantity. I see a, a widening of the gap. Mm -hmm. between the good ones and the bad ones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I think this was from a, a... 
the majority of these studies are from a time period where the good ones weren't as good. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think like if you were going to stack the deck fully and say like, I'm going to make it really hard to find an error, then you'd probably say, okay, well, what we're going to do is go at the, you know, 25 most recent ones published in a high quality journal that only publishes systematic reviews. Like you would go to like sports medicine, which almost exclusively publishes reviews. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it kind of has the best reputation I would say of journals in our field when it comes to systematic reviews and meta-analyses specifically. Yeah. Like, so I, I, there would be a way for them to stack, stack the deck more aggressively against themselves for sure. Cause mm -hmm. like, like you said, I mean, they're getting better over time, especially the, the, the higher quality ones are getting much more sophisticated. Um, but, but there's still a lot of those just bottom of the barrel ones that are sneaking through and you're like, what happened here? Right? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with yeah, that. Yeah. So I, I, I think we're definitely on the same page there where, I, they certainly weren't making it easy for themselves by going for the 20 most cited. Uh, I think it's probably pretty representative, all things considered, when, when you factor in the fact that things are getting better over time, but there are also just a lot of bad metas that are coming out even today. Mm -hmm. um, so when it comes to the errors that they were screening for, um, one was ignoring outliers, which is pretty self-explanatory, like... Um, Ideally, when you're doing a meta-analysis or reading it, you know, the whole purpose is to derive really useful insights from the data. And, and it is kind of uh, frustrating when you look at a meta-analysis and there's like one or two or three studies that are just on a different planet in terms of effect size. And you're just like, are, are you going to mention that? <laughs> like that? That seems important. If we're summarizing this literature, it would be important to know why those are out there and how much they're impacting the analysis. Uh, number two, miscalculated effect sizes that arise from using standard errors instead of standard deviations. Um, pretty self-explanatory, happens way too much. Usually you can identify it by just glancing at the forest plot, uh, and reviewers don't. Yeah. So there's that. Well, and that dovetails with number one, because if you're, if you're screening for outliers, most of the time those miscalculated effect sizes using standard errors will also be outliers. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, those are usually the same thing. It, yeah. It's usually that the outliers are miscalculated effect sizes. Uh, not always, but, but often. Should, should we give just like a little bit more background for people who, who don't have any statistics background for like why the standard error standard deviation thing is specifically a problem? Sure. Go for it. Sure. So, um, Typically, uh, so if if you've heard of of a bell curve, for instance, or just like a, a standard or like a, a normal distribution of something, um, generally that's going to be described with a with a mean and a standard deviation, um, and so like something within plus or one or plus or minus one standard deviation from the mean. That's about two thirds of your data, plus or minus two standard deviations. That's about 95% of your data, plus or minus three standard deviations. That's like 99.8, 99.9% of your data. It's it's most of it. Um, and yeah, not not too much data, more than three standard deviations from the mean. So it's it, it tells you basically how spread out your data is. Um, but then for the purposes of like, computing a p-value or a, or a t-statistic or, or whatever, um, like for kind of the next step of your analysis, 
um, where you're trying to determine like, hey, how how different are these means? You want to take the sample size into account. Um, and so essentially, like if you if if you uh, you know study one group of people, take their bench press one rep max, and it's a hundred kilograms plus or minus ten kilos, so that plus or minus standard deviation. Um, and that's based on eight total subjects versus you get the exact same distribution, 100 plus or minus 10 kilos uh, with, a, with a sample of 1,000 subjects. You can be a lot more confident in, in that distribution of results and of your mean results, which is what you're ultimately trying to estimate uh, with the sample of 1,000 than the sample of eight. And so if you're comparing like, hey, we, we took this other sample of people who bench press 110 plus or minus 10 kilos, uh, are these two sample means different? Um, essentially, you want to treat the sample of 1,000 as if there's way, way more precision in that estimate because there is. You, you sampled a lot more people. Um, and so what you do to uh, calculate a standard error is just divide the standard deviation by the square root of the n of the, of the like, group size you're dealing with. Um, and the, the N is the sample size, just to be super clear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, and so uh, essentially, like, you know, if you have, um, yeah, if it's 100 plus or minus 10 and there's like nine people per group, you would divide that 10 by three, the square root of nine. And so your standard error would be like 3.333 repeating. Uh, if it's 100 plus or minus 10 and you have 100 subjects in the group, you divide by the square root of 10. So your standard error would just be one. Essentially, just again denoting that your estimate your estimate of the mean is a lot more precise and reliable if you're dealing with a larger sample size to start with. And so, where this becomes a problem is standard errors are just mathematically always smaller than standard deviations, uh, and that's especially problematic if you have like a huge group. So, you know, shrinking that plus or minus ten down to plus or minus one with the standard error if you have that sample size of a hundred. Um, but regardless, like no matter how big your group is, even with just nine subjects, you know, you're you're shrinking it down to one third of, of what the size was. And so if you're calculating an effect size in the Cohen's D family, generally what you're calculating is a difference between groups divided by a standard deviation. And so if you just mess up and plug a standard error in there as well, or if you plug a standard error in instead of a standard deviation, you're making the denominator of that uh, of that fraction that you're creating uh, much, much smaller. And so that has the effect of massively inflating the effect size. So an effect size that maybe should have been, you know, a, a D of 0.4, like a relatively small effect size. Uh, if you mess up and use the standard error instead, now instead of 0.4, it might be like 1.5 because you just, you know, you, you just made that little slip up. Um so yeah, uh, generally, if you make that mistake and plug a standard error into an effect size formula instead of a standard deviation, it will have the effect of massively inflating the effect size. And, and like I said, generally, those things will be outliers as well. Like it, it should jump off the page at you, but not always. So if, if something would otherwise have a trivial effect, like a, a D or a G value of like 0 0.1, 0 0.15, and you accidentally plug in a standard error, you know, now you might still wind up with an erroneously calculated effect size that looks reasonable in magnitude, like, yeah, maybe 0 0.4, 0 0.5, whatever, doesn't really jump off the page at you, but it's still 
you know, inflated two, three, four, five fold bigger than, than it should have been. Yeah. And I, uh, my number, if I'm just like reading through a meta for the first time, if you're giving me a Cohen's D or a Hedges G and you're saying, yeah, it was about a three, three and a half. I'm looking at the full text. Like I'm going to go in and be like, are you sure? Yeah. Uh, And you know, I, I will say like, there are some, um, original papers like not to put not to put 100 percent of the blame on the meta now on, on the meta analysts here there are some original papers where clearly the authors have uh said here's a standard deviation and it's actually a standard error yeah i have absolutely seen that before w- now 100 percent. ideally a meta analyst would be looking at it very closely and and there would there should be in a well-reported study enough contextual factors where you would be able to sort that out um but but you know sometimes it happens and sometimes it goes from a super 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 tiny effect size to a very small effect size like you mentioned so this stuff can get a little a little messy a little a little technical but um anyway yeah so it's it can be a problem and like i said if i ever see an effect size above three in a forest plot my first thought is, are we sure that's a standard deviation that got put in here? Yeah. Uh, so the third one is ignoring within study correlation. And that might sound uh, very jargony and technical, but it's actually, it's typically quite simple. It's, you know, correlated observations are, are basically when you're getting multiple effect sizes in a meta-analysis that are coming from the same sample of individuals, um, and you can extend that out with with some of the more nuanced modeling techniques into even multiple samples from the same study um, ought to be correlated to some extent, uh, just because of you know all the other factors of study design that are similar uh, among those samples. But um, getting it down to you know very very basic language here, sometimes you'll you'll see a study where they're like, yeah, we are measuring strength outcomes, and we got bench press and leg press, and uh, you know back squat and deadlift so sometimes in a meta-analysis you'll see that the analysts opted to use four different data points from the same group and treat that as if it was just four totally different groups of people in terms of how the math mathematically how the data were crunched uh and so of course that that runs into uh, a number of statistical issues where uh, some individuals are having really undue influence on on the analysis, and it's just generally statistically problematic to be double counting or triple counting or quadruple counting individuals within the analysis. Uh, number four is focusing on within group rather than between group results. Uh, a great example of this that came up, I reviewed a, a meta-analysis on vitamin D, and, uh, you know, normally with an effect size, you're looking at what was the effect of the vitamin D group compared to the effect observed in the placebo group. Um, that, that's really how you want to frame that effect size is not just what was the effect in the vitamin D group. You want to say what was the effect in the vitamin D group above and beyond the effect of the placebo within this study. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I reviewed a, a meta-analysis in mass a couple years back with vitamin D where in terms of calculating effect sizes, they just pretended the placebo groups didn't exist, you know? Uh, and so ultimately that's just uh, losing a great deal of pertinent information and basically sacrificing uh, one of the key elements of what makes the randomized controlled trial so valuable, right? Uh, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're doing that, you're effectively getting rid of the, the major advantages of doing a randomized controlled trial in the first place. Yeah. 
Um, and then finally, uh, failing to account for within study variants. Basically, uh, when you're doing an analysis, you would like for it to be weighted in a meta-analysis. Um, I, I had someone ask me a question the other day of like kind of niche examples of instances where perhaps you might not want to do weighting within meta-analysis, but broadly speaking, you, you'd prefer to have a weighted analysis for your meta-analyses. And what that means is um, there's different ways that you can weight a meta-analysis. A meta Inverse variance weighting is the most common in our field. But generally speaking, what that means is the bigger studies get a little bit more, a little bit more pull in the analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, they kind of anchor the analysis more. Um, they, they tend to have more precise effect estimates. So basically, you've got a study with you know thirty thousand people over here and a study with thirty people over here. Which effect size do you have more confidence in? Uh, probably the one with thirty thousand people, right? Um, yeah. You know, so you want to make sure that your analysis reflects the fact. That when you have these tiny groups of people, your effect effect estimates tend to be a little bit more, there's more volatility. They kind of bounce around a little bit due to sampling error. With much bigger studies, you have a little bit less of that, you know, volatility. You, you kind of start to triangulate more into the kind of quote unquote true population level effect size estimate. Uh, so those are the five main uh, errors that they were looking for in this paper. Um if you want more detail, obviously, you know, you can get into really nitty gritty explanations of all those. But just looking at the prevalence numbers here, what percent of these 20 metas ignored outliers and just, you know, didn't account for them, didn't adjust for them, didn't comment on them, basically? Um, 25%, uh, which is a pretty high number. What percentage miscalculated effect sizes because they use standard errors instead of deviations? Uh, 45%, very high number. Uh, what percent ignored within study correlations? 45% again. Uh, which, uh, how, how many of them focused on within group rather than between group outcomes? That was 45% again. That was honestly shocking to me. Yeah, yeah, that, that the, was surprising. The The first three, I was like, okay, yeah, like that that makes sense. I've read a lot of metas. I see those those things all the time. Uh, but yeah, the, the within study versus between, or the within group versus between group effects, I, I did not expect that to be an issue in in forty five percent of them. Yeah, I, I I agree. That one snuck up on me. I was also surprised by number five, failing to account for within study variance. Uh, that ended up being forty percent, uh, which was higher than I would have thought. Um, so again, with these prevalence numbers, Greg, you brought up a, a really good point that you know to what extent do they reflect the current state of the literature, like a brand new meta analysis that comes out? It's hard to say because the beta the the better metas in our field are getting better at a very rapid rate, but there is such a high number of metas that are coming out now that just the sheer volume of crappy metas is getting higher. Yeah. Um, so the, the the question of how does that affect the kind of mean or median quality? I'm not entirely certain uh, about that at this point, but um, in lieu of better prevalence numbers, this is kind of, you know, these are what we have to work with. And I, I do think that they are, Number one, uh, fairly representative of the current state uh, of metas. Uh, but number two, and more importantly, these numbers are too damn high, Greg. Yeah, <laughs> you, you don't want to. You don't want to have forty-five percent of your metas out there. Uh, so the number that that really made the headlines here. Um, where's the number? I, I think the the it, overall number was eighty-five percent. I I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm pretty certain that you know we we talked about the prevalence of individual errors but yeah 
The researchers in this paper found that 85% of these top 20 metas contained at least one statistical error. Um, so I'm not going to you know, go through the entirety of the article here, but if you happen to check it out, it's uh, strongerbyscience.com slash meta-analyses. It'll be linked in the show notes. You can really dig into the details. What I did in the article is I walked through... When I, when I first read this article, I said, I believe that we have covered all of this in mass before. Um, now, we've never, I mean, I'm not like saying, oh, we, we you know, totally had we, this. We scooped them. Yeah, because um, we never put the effort or effort in, <laughs> into, into actually doing a formal analysis. Like, I, I think the researchers should be absolutely commended. They did a terrific job. They did a, a much better job than, than I or we would have done. Um, so I, I couldn't be uh, happier that they spearheaded this project. But as I was going through it, I was like, I know that we've pointed out most, if not all of these, just because we had to. When we were reviewing metas previously in mass, it was like, I can't review this without highlighting this error and why it matters. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was very tickled as I went back through our archive to find for every one of these errors, I was able to find a mass article where we flagged it, identified it, and explained, you know, why it was problematic. So yeah, as I was reading this, uh, this paper um, by Cadillac and colleagues, the whole time I was just kind of nodding saying like, yep, yeah, I know that. And, and it, it was one of those times where the science is really just reflective of your experience where you're like, yeah, this, this all definitely, definitely checks out. Yeah. So in the article, there, there's two things I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to be helpful, not snarky, uh, which is a new thing for me. But uh, so I wasn't just trying to like pile on like some of these errors are very forgivable. Some of them are very understandable. Um, in fact, I, there are even some instances where like there, there are some papers that include meta regressions or certain analyses that technically violate one or two of these rules, but I still think are very informative, very insightful and actually very intuitive ways to kind of get at the data, broadly speaking. So yeah. I, I don't want people to think that if a paper maybe has like one thing here for one of its like six analyses that it's like, oh, these authors are idiots, throw out the whole paper, don't even look at it, certainly don't get any insights from it. That's really not the case. Like just with any other statistical thing, like when I first started learning about statistics, I just wanted to like memorize a rule book. I was like, give me the rules, I'll learn them and then I'll play by the rules. But the more you get into it, you start getting into concepts where there are like opinions and perspectives and degrees of wrongness mm -hmm. and, and where you draw the line between too wrong and not wrong enough. Like it, it, it there's a lot of um, room for argument and debate with some of these things. And there are instances where you'd say like, you know, does this figure, um, you know, fail to account for within study variance? Yes. Is it still very, very informative for answering the research question? Also, yes. You know, you do run into that stuff. I remember one time this well, is... And, and I mean, even with that example, like the, the extent to which it matters just depends on the, the group of studies you're dealing with. Like if, if it's something where, you know, there's one or two studies with like 500 subjects per group and then 20 with, you know, 10, 15 subjects per group, then it's like, yeah, that, that should probably be weighted. But if, if, it's, a, if it's a meta where you know, there's eight studies going into it and all of the studies have between 12 and 20 subjects per group. Eh, should you weight it? Sure. If you don't weight it, 
are you going to wind up with a dramatically different effect estimate? Nah, not really. So yeah, yeah. Even even something that that is like technically something you should do. The the extent to which it actually matters, like the the extent to which it'll actually affect your your effect estimates and therefore the conclusions you draw. Um, yeah, it 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 varies meta to meta. Yeah, and and some of these errors, like I'll, I'll look at a paper and I'll know exactly why they did it because I'll be like, I see what you're getting at with this analysis. And I don't know what software I would use to actually answer that question and check all these boxes. Like you, you, it exists. I mean, if, if nothing else, you could do it yourself. You know, you could get in a really flexible program like R and just do the math. If you're good enough to do that, I'm not. But yeah, there's, there's some questions where you'll see what people are trying to do. Like, so a good example is like, you'll see breakpoint analyses or like nonlinear approaches to, to uh, regression where they fail to weight the studies because they're just using kind of a standard regression approach rather than a meta regression approach, just based on what softwares have to offer, um, just like out of the box software. So all of that is to say, uh, the point here is not to be hypercritical or snarky. It's just to kind of highlight some of these common errors so that as you're reading through papers, you can identify them and, uh, and contextualize the findings and keep these things in mind. I was going to say one of the things about, I was talking about like, uh, differences of opinion and perspective and statistics. I remember one time I was really lucky. I took a class with, with uh, a really good statistician who had, he was probably pushing 80 years old. He had seen everything. He had been in the field forever and was really, really well respected for sure. And I remember one time um, he said something in a lecture and I was like, that, that strikes me as being I'm not saying wrong, but contradictory to everything I've ever heard on the topic. And so then I like spent like an entire evening just Googling and Googling and Googling, getting into like message boards that only people with a PhD in statistics are even like aware of. Mm -hmm. And I'm digging into the details and I eventually find a reference supporting this statement. And the reference, it leads me to a footnote. Uh, and it said, this is true because so-and-so said it and it was my professor <laughs> and like so basically like people in the like tiniest most nuanced statistical circles were actually like yeah like bill made a really really good argument for this and it's definitely you know a really solid perspective but like in terms of like is it right or wrong it really just depends on who feels that they've been convinced of it you know so all of that is to say statistics when you start getting into some of these topics it's not totally black and white sometimes there are some gray areas uh, and um the the total impact or the relative impact of an error like you said is very context dependent so number one just trying to flag some of these errors uh so that readers are aware of them and, and can keep them in mind number two in the article, I provide a checklist uh, for reading a meta-analysis. It's a 10-point checklist, and it's basically if you open up a brand new meta and you say, okay, what am I looking for here? It's the 10 items that I think people really should have in mind whenever they read a meta-analysis. So I'm not going to bore people by reading through these 10 points one by one. Uh, not great radio, in my opinion, but they're in the article, and I definitely recommend checking it out. The overall tone of the article, um, you know, it's important to clarify the point I'm making and the point I'm not making. So I'm definitely not saying like, oh, metas are so bad, you should just disregard them. 
Metas are a very, very powerful tool. Uh, they deserve to be at the top of the hierarchy of evidence, um, but we still ought to do them as best we can. You know, we, we should, uh, as a field, be very compelled to get better and better and better uh, with our metas. Um, so metas are still great, um, but we should read them critically and skeptically, just like we read any other research. We should not say, well, it's a meta, so damn, I guess I'm wrong, right? I mean, maybe you are, but a meta, you know, we, we still have to really rigorously uh, interpret them, look for some of these key errors, and contextualize their findings accordingly. Um, all right, I think that's all I had to say on that. Uh, on that, Oh, yeah, I did want to mention a uh, shout out to Charlie Poole. Uh, I, I gave him an acknowledgement in the article. I was so lucky, man. Uh, Charlie Poole taught a course at my university on meta-analyses, and he's he's in the... Um, the stats and methods group of the Cochrane collaboration. If you ever ever heard of like a Cochrane review, they're basically like the governing authoritative body on, I would say, systematic review methodology and also just the general concept of evidence based practice. Um, and if I, if unless I'm mistaken, I believe it's named after Archie Cochrane, who kind of came up with evidence-based practice as a thing. Uh, I could be wrong on that. So I'm sure people will fact check me and, you know, dunk on me in the appropriate channels. But anyway, uh, so Charlie Poole is, I mean, he's forgotten more about meta-analyses than I'll ever know. Um, and so, yeah, I just uh, wanted to give him a shout out because without taking his course, I would know zero of the things that I wrote about in this article. So major props to Charlie. And like I said, if you're interested in the article, make sure you give it a read. It is free. It's on our website and it is linked in the show notes. The the one thing I would add is um like so when when I when I posted this on Instagram, it did the the post itself did really well and and there were a lot of comments on the post and there was a particular flavor of like reactionary con or like re reactionary comment to to the post and and to uh, this content in general that I think is uh, like, I, I understand how people got there, but I also think it's a, a reasonably indefensible perspective, which <laughs> is, you know, just people being like, well, if, if 85% of these metas have errors, uh, you, th that mean that means meta analyses are fake. And that uh, anyone who's like trying to cite meta analyses to, to support a particular point, they have no idea what they're talking about. Like this shit's all, all just fake news. Um, but like the the thing is like this the the study itself that you are writing about and in, in your article about it like one of one of the key points is that all of these errors are reasonably easy to spot yeah um like if you either read the the article by by Cadlick and colleagues or uh, Eric's article about their article um you you should you should be able to relatively quickly and easily gain the tools to spot these errors um and then like just just account for them yourself basically it, which which doesn't necessarily have to include like re-extracting all of the data and like rerunning a, a meta analysis for yourself but you know for instance like it, it's not it's not hard to spot an outlier like it's not hard to spot uh, studies where they they use standard errors instead of standard deviations to calculate effect sizes. Like it, it does requ require more legwork on your part, pulling up some of those individual studies with some effect sizes that might seem suspect. Um, 
it's it's not hard to like just note whether they weighted the studies or not um you know they'll either say hey we did inverse variance weighting and then on on the right column of the uh of the forest plot they do you can see like different weights for each one um or or they just don't <laughs> and you know if if you just you know if there's eight effect estimates in a forest plot if you just plug them into a calculator and divide by eight and you get the exact mean effect reported then like ah yeah they, they probably didn't weight it um but yeah like this this is all like pretty simple basic stuff to spot for yourself so yeah like uh and like we mentioned before the the average quality of of metas at least that are getting published in high quality journals is is trending up over time so like this is at least in part a snapshot of the state of met of meta analyses in our field five ten years ago um so yeah like Basic, basically, what what we're trying to say is don't uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater entirely. Like a, a well done meta analysis is still incredibly valuable, and a lot of these common errors in meta analyses, you 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 shouldn't feel disempowered. Like oh, if if they made a mistake, there's no way I could ever spot this. And so I shouldn't look at metas at all because they might lead me to erroneous conclusions, et cetera, et cetera. Like that, that is not what you should take from this. Um, it, it's just like there is a skill set required for critically reading and evaluating any type of research. And there is a specialized sub skill set within that general skill set of being able to critically read, understand, and analyze meta-analyses and, and spot some of these errors that pop up from time to time. Um, but those those aren't tremendously difficult skills to pick up. Like, you you should be able to spot these errors for yourself and, um, you know, be, be able to account for that uh, so you can still read meta-analyses and, and derive, uh, you, you know, correct and beneficial conclusions from them. Yeah, I mean, along those lines, I'm, I'm sure people will he hear this or see it and say, well, man, if all these, you know, professors that are reviewing these papers who have been taught how to do this, if they're not catching these errors, what chance do I have, you know? And one of the things I mentioned in the article, which is uh, kind of a poorly kept secret, is like, I've been, I, I've spent a lot of my time ha hanging around, you know, professors, grad students in the field. I don't know of a department that actually has a class in their department about the statistics of meta-analyses. I've never heard of such a thing. The only reason I was able to access that course was because it was way across campus in a totally different department. I sought it out myself, and people thought I was kind of a dumbass for doing it, honestly. Uh, it turned out to be like one of the best courses I took in, in all my, my schooling. But you know, the reality is with, with reviewing these metas, a lot of the folks that are reviewing them uh, have never done a meta-analysis or, or, you know, run, you know, crunch the numbers for it and, and have never taken a course that demonstrates how to do that. And they're going into this with, um, I, I would argue, kind of insufficient information to review a, a meta critically personally. Um, so, yeah, if you're kind of assuming like, man, this has gotten through people who are really well trained in this particular thing. It's actually usually not the case, uh, which, it, which is a, a whole separate problem entirely. Um, 
but but yeah, I mean, this does not mean that metas aren't helpful and useful, but it means, hey, they're a piece of research and we have to read research critically, you yeah. know? As the first and only fitness podcast with a steadfast commitment to traditional family values, we know that protecting families is important. Right you are, Eric. But I will note there are some things that are even more important than protecting traditional family values and the moral fabric of our society. That's right, Greg. It's important to protect families, but it's even more important to protect corporate entities. That's why I joined the advisory board for the Sports Nutrition Association, along with trusted fitness pros like Danny Lennon and distrusted arch nemeses like Eric Helms. The Sports Nutrition Association is the home of sports nutrition. They are dedicated to ensuring the sustainable prosperity of the sports nutrition profession, and they offer a unique pathway to robust insurance coverage for your sports nutrition business. Simply put, it's the best way to protect the corporate entities that are closest to your heart. And I should note, if you're an individual sole proprietor uh, providing sports nutrition services, and not a corporate entity, the Sports Nutrition Association can help you out as well. That is correct. All insurance plans are handled individually on a case-by-case basis, regardless of how your sports nutrition business is structured. But even if you don't want insurance coverage, SNA membership comes with a bunch of other perks and advantages. The Sports Nutrition Association is the only global professional sports body that has a defined standard for sports nutrition scope of practice for its members. This ensures that members maintain high standards in their practice so that the public can always trust in the quality associated with the services of an accredited sports nutritionist through the Sports Nutrition Association. If you already meet their minimum education requirements, you can become an accredited sports nutritionist today. Uh, If you don't meet those education requirements yet, you can enroll in the certificate program in Applied Sports Nutrition. That allows you to become a provisionally accredited member upon completion. To learn more about the Sports Nutrition Association, head over to www.sportsnutritionassociation.com today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Sports Nutrition Association and Stronger by Science LLC sincerely appreciates their support. All right, moving on. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit here about motivation and behavior change. So last uh, January, January 3rd, 2000, well, I guess, is that last January? I guess it's technically this January yeah. of 2022, about a year ago. I'll say that. I pub- published an article called An Evidence-Based Approach to Goal Setting and Behavior Change. You can find it at strongerbyscience.com slash setting. And uh, that was the the kind of topic of last week's episode, the re-aired episode. And the, the focal point basically is goal setting uh, and a couple of little tips and strategies for turning goals into action. But the article, in hindsight, definitely lacked two important things. Um, not necessarily a weakness of the article, but you can't write one article about all things, right? You got you to gotta cut it at some point. That article lacked a comprehensive framework for understanding and promoting motivation, and it also lacked a comprehensive framework for understanding and promoting sustainable behavior change. And so that is what this segment's all about. I want to pick up where goal setting uh, left off and kind of build on it from there. So before we 
talk about specific theories or strategies, we need to probably define motivation. And there's three definitions that I think are, sometimes I like to use multiple definitions so you get kind of a vibe, a more well-rounded kind of uh, look at what a word means rather than just saying we have to pick one specific definition and ignore all the others. So three definitions I'll put out there. One is for, for motivation, psychological energy directed at a particular goal. Number two, the energizing of behavior in pursuit of a goal. And number three, the process whereby goal-directed activities are initiated and sustained. Uh, In expectancy value theory, motivation is a function of the expectation of success and perceived value. So that gives us a nice well-rounded idea of when we say motivation, what exactly are we talking about? But it also, uh, one of the things you'll note there is that motivation pertains to a goal, right? The first two uh, first two definitions, goal was the last word. We're talking about motivation as it pertains to some goal. So before we talk about cultivate, cultivating motivation, we need to figure out what our goals are because the motivation is specifically in reference to them. So I don't want to rehash everything from last week's episode, but a very, very quick uh, primer or refresher about goal setting Uh, You've probably heard, hey, you're setting a goal, make sure it's a SMART goal, Um, SMART being an acronym. You can dig into the article for more details. You can listen to last episode for more details. SMART goals, um, not that smart. They've really caught on in fitness, um, but not for good reasons. Um, You know, not because they were developed for fitness and health, not because they have been robustly empirically tested and validated in, in health and fitness. It was really a corporate tool uh, to keep people on task. And people were like, smart, I like the sound of that. I, I think that's going to work for, for us. Um, but the problem with smart goals is that they are, um, they're totally isolated. You know, they're, they're just kind of floating around. You've got this specific thing that is kind of like decontextualized. It's like, oh, I'm going to go to the gym for 45 minutes, three days a week. And it's just kind of existing out in the ether and like it's not tethered to anything. Uh, And so sometimes people will kind of make a a little list of SMART goals, three or four of them at a time. There is no organization in terms of how they all link together. There's no kind of broader framework for how they're all fitting together. And so, you know, you you start falling short on one or the other. You kind of lose interest, uh, lose motivation, and you kick them by the wayside and then you start over next January. You know, that's a really common thing. So rather than focusing on SMART goals, um, which empirically just don't seem to be that great for health and fitness, I think it's much more helpful uh, to focus on a goal hierarchy, which I talked about a lot previously. Um, But you want to basically have this tiered system where you've got a superordinate goal, which really is tied to your sense of self. It's really reflective of your values, your priorities, and kind of your idealized sense of self. And then under that, you have intermediate goals that support that superordinate goal. And then under those, you've got even more subordinate goals. And that's where you start to see something that resembles a SMART goal. You know, those subordinate goals are more specific. You kind of really sketch out how you intend to implement them in a really defined way. Um, but they are now contextualized within this broader hierarchy, which is anchored by a superordinate goal. Um, and th- there's tremendous value of this. Uh, for example, two really big advantages, I guess three really big advantages. First of all, 
your superordinate goal, because it's that anchor that is really tied to your sense of self, it tends to be more stable and resilient. So like you might lose interest in this like random smart goal that you're doing a, you know, three days a week, 45 minutes, but why though? Right. And, and eventually you start missing the third day and you say, screw it. I don't care anymore. With a superordinate goal, it's hard to throw it out and say, screw it. I don't care anymore. I mean, this is something that is fundamentally tied to your sense of self and your value system. So it gives you that resiliency and that robustness where even when you run into friction and challenges and you start having some slip ups, you say, right, but like, do I still value what I value? And the answer is typically yes, right? So that's one advantage. Or if the answer is no, that means you're going through a complete shift in worldview, major existential crisis. And the fact that you're like, not losing weight at quite the rate you want to or your bench press progress has stalled is is really is really the least of your concerns but it is it is really powerful though to to have this framework and when you start working through it and you say you know what the more i think about it the more i think my superordinate goal has changed sometimes people or that you just lied to yourself in the first place yeah or or that it was never the right goal for you sometimes people toil for years on end before they actually make that realization. And like one of the happiest days of their life is when they made that realization. And you start to say, Oh, all of my goals feel like I'm just like pulling teeth and pushing a heavy rock uphill because this is not where my heart is. And I should go where my heart is. <laughs> like, so, so like, yeah, like there, there is that like existential crisis component, but it's also just like, maybe you need to actually figure out what you value and start pursuing that, um, which Mm -hmm. can be a powerful thing. Um, But other advantages here. First, there's the idea of equifinality, which is the idea that you can have multiple lower level goals that all support a single higher level goal. And so, um, for example, if you have uh, a higher level goal that is to be healthy, for example, uh, you might say, okay, I want to exercise. I want to sleep well. I want to manage stress well, I want to clean up my diet. If you start slipping up in one of those categories, you are still able to pursue other avenues that are supporting the higher level goal, right? So you don't feel like, wow, I'm a complete failure. You say, okay, there's four routes by which I can really make strides toward that higher level goal that's really important to me. And I'm still making really big strides in three of those four facets. So while I'm enjoying the success of the other three, I can revisit and troubleshoot the issues I'm having with the fourth one. So that's a really powerful thing. And then multi-finality is another advantage, which is kind of the inverse of that. It's the fact that you can have one lower level goal that supports multiple higher level goals. And the reason that's important, so like an example in a paper by Hockley and colleagues that I'll certainly link in the show notes, um, you know, going with those four intermediate goals, you know, you know, be be in good shape, get enough sleep, avoid stress or manage stress, eat a healthy diet. You could argue that exercise-related goals, like if you have a goal of exercise three times a week or whatever it is, you could argue that exercising is helping you be in good physical shape. It's helping you regulate your sleep better. I know I sleep like shit when I stop exercising. It can help you with stress management. And a lot of people also notice that they tend to have an easier job with hunger and appetite management when they are exercising regularly. Not everybody, but some folks. Um, so when you're trying to get out of bed at 5 a.m. and it's dark out and it's cold out, 
you need a reason that's going to be compelling enough today to get you out of bed, right? So that you don't hit the snooze and say, screw it. I'll get another hour of sleep. My bed is warm. I like that. Uh, I'll try again tomorrow, right? And depending on the day, the reason that is compelling enough to get you out of bed and keep you away from the snooze button, it might change. And that's the power, in my opinion, of multifinality is some days when you're waking up to get out of bed and go to the gym and you really don't want to, the desire to be in good physical shape might be the thing that gets you out of bed. But on different days, it might just be, you know what? I know I sleep like shit if I skip these workouts. So for that reason, I'm going to go ahead and do it, right? Uh, Or I know that I really suck at managing stress if I'm not exercising regularly. So even though I don't want to, I'm getting out of bed. Let's get to the gym, right? So that's a very short synopsis of why goal hierarchies are really powerful. Um, So that's the first step, right? So we've got some great goals in place. Uh, There's a lot of evidence to suggest that these hierarchies are really useful tools for goal setting. We've got goals, but now we have to actually cultivate and maintain motivation specifically related to those goals, right? Because like I said, when I was defining motivation, motivation is in reference to a particular goal. Now, motivation, uh, a lot of people kind of view it as a dichotomous thing, right? It Motivation exists, you either have it or you don't. One of the main things we're going to talk about in this segment is self-determination theory, which is a theory proposed by Ryan and Desi. And one of the underlying concepts in self-determination theory is that motivation, there are many forms of it, and different types of motivation exist on a spectrum that ranges from low quality to high quality motivation. So there's really one defining characteristic that dictates what what is happening as you're moving up that that uh, spectrum and going from lower quality to higher quality. And the question is, to what extent are intrinsic factors really guiding this motivation? So of course, the lowest quality form of motivation is the absence of motivation, which which you would call a motivation. Um, but then you've got lower quality types of motivation that are very extrinsic in nature. And like some like if we think of like a super low quality extrinsic motivator, it's like you literally have to do this or you're going to get punished. Yeah. Deep down, you think it's stupid. You don't want to do it. You don't value it. If you had any choice at all, you certainly would not do it. But simply to avoid punishment, you will do it, right? Totally extrinsic in nature, very low quality motivation, generally speaking. And then you get into tasks that are not totally intrinsic, but they're getting close, right? So a, a good example is that, that I read in, in a paper by Ryan and Desi is doing your homework, right? So you can think of, you know, a high school kid doing their homework, right? Totally extrinsic would be, if I don't do this, my teacher is going to give me a hard time. My parents are going to give me a hard time. I think it's dumb and stupid. I don't value it at all, but I'm just going to do it so I don't have to deal with that shit. But there's also a form of extrinsic motivation that is kind of moving up into higher quality, which is, do I love doing homework for its own sake? No. Uh, so it's not a purely intrinsic motivator here where I'm just doing it because I love it. I value it for its own sake. I think this homework is excellent, but you might say, okay, I'm a junior in high school. I want to make sure I get into the college that I like. 
I do sincerely believe that if I do well in this course, I'll have better opportunities for school and that will set me up for the type of career that I'm hoping for. It's more intrinsic. You, you are you are invested in some belief that there's value in this and there is some part of you that says, yeah, I'm I'm better off doing this, you know? Yeah, like you, you don't care about the thing itself that much, but you you do care about what it might be able to do for you. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah so, so that's why we don't say, you know, oh, there's just two kinds, extrinsic, extrinsic and intrinsic. It's not really so simple. There's kind of a gradient where you start to say, okay, there are some more internally regulated perspectives and processes that are that are feeding into this type of motivation as you work your way up that scale. And then, of course, you know, the, the highest level of, of motivation is an intrinsic motivation where you are doing this for its own sake. Um, and, and we do see that a lot in, in fitness, I think. Like, I've there have been times in my life where it's been really challenging to take an off day. I love training because I love training, you know? So, like, I would rather be in the gym than not in the gym. Like, I'm sure you've had periods in your life where you're like that as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so, it, I do think it's kind of funny. I'm going to be a little snarky here, but like, I don't think people realize when they're in that level of motivation where it's it's totally intrinsic and they have just fallen in love with the act of training. And then they'll like put on some like they'll like do like a motivational tweet and be like, I love this shit. Why are you lazy? And it's like, well, it's not so simple, is it? You know? Yeah. It's like they, they don't really understand that they have kind of hit that intrinsic motivation where they act like they're doing something like that's really, you know, like, wow, it's so amazing that you get to the gym every day. It's like, dude, you you love being there. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's, not... it's like, c- congrats, dude. You found the motivation necessary to do precisely what it is you want to do. Yeah, your favorite thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. you are able to do it daily, and congrats on the sacrifice. Yeah, that that's like going up to a 14-year-old boy and being like, hey, congrats for playing video games. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, sure, that, I'm sure that took a lot of mental effort to get you there. Exactly, yeah, so... All of that is to say motivation exists on a spectrum according to self-determination theory. And what we would like to do is cultivate, if we can, uh, more intrinsic types of motivation uh, to the extent possible. Another misconception, in my opinion, about motivation, one is that it's just on or off. There is a singular construct of motivation. Like I said, there's multiple types and they vary in, in, in quality. Another misconception, in my opinion, is that we have to manufacture uh, motivation, that it's something that we have to create out of raw materials through effort. And self-determination theory, by my read of it, um, posits a very different perspective, which is that, you know, humans have kind of an intrinsic drive toward curiosity and growth and betterment. We want to do things that we find interesting and empowering, and we want to grow and master new things and learn new things. Self-determination theory posits that that is an intrinsic quality or characteristic of the human condition. However, we are not always at a high state of intrinsic motivation, right? So what self-determination theory suggests is that there are times where we are thwarting or failing to um, failing to fulfill our key psychological needs that put us in a space where we're really able to kind of tap into that intrinsic motivation. 
Um, so when, you know, a lot, a lot of folks will say, you know, I don't know, like, I feel like I really have to dig deep for that intrinsic motivation. I, I think, um, it's better instead of viewing it as like, I need to manufacture this. It's, am I creating the conditions necessary for intrinsic motivation to manifest? Now, one thing might be that you're setting goals that are just completely misaligned with your interests. And in that case, it's going to be very, very difficult to, to allow intrinsic motivation to manifest in that context. But, but like I said, I think a, a huge misconception is I need to manufacture this intrinsic motivation. I think a much more compelling argument is that we need to create the conditions necessary for intrinsic motivation to organically manifest. And that's going to be a combination of setting really effective goals that are truly in line with our interests and desires, but also fulfilling our key psychological needs so that they are not thwarted in a way that suppresses our ability to let that, that motivation manifest. Those uh, key psychological needs, we've talked about, about them before on the show. They are autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Those are the three psychological needs that, that really drive self-determination theory. And the idea is that when you are able to fulfill those three psychological needs, uh, you are putting yourself in the right conditions for intrinsic motivation to be cultivated. If you are unable to fulfill those psychological needs, if you have major shortcomings in one or more of those areas, you might be in a, in a situation where the intrinsic motivation could manifest, but the conditions simply are not correct. You're, you're not putting yourself in a position or, or I don't want to make that like blamey. You are not currently in a set of circumstances that is conducive to intrinsic motivation kind of manifesting organically. So I want to define those terms really quick. Uh, relatedness, two definitions. One, being meaningfully connected to others. Number two, the need to feel close to and understood by important others, people that, that are important to you. Autonomy is feeling a sense of authentic choice in what one does, uh, or the need to feel choiceful and volitional as the originator of one's actions. Uh, so you really feel like like you have a lot of uh, power over what you do and why, basically. And then competence is just feeling effective in what one does or the need to feel capable of achieving desired outcomes, right? And so that ties in really well with uh, some of the goal-setting discussions we've had where you know, when we talk about setting good goals, we talk about the hierarchy, but we also talk about, you know, favoring approach goals rather than avoidance, flexible restraint over rigid restraint, process over outcome, mastery over performance, uh, and setting goals that are hard, but not too hard, right? And so when you start to look at the advantages of approach goals, using flexible restraint, process goals, mastery goals, goals that are hard enough to excite us, but not so hard that they that we just fail and fail and fail and crush our motivation, you can see how some of those concepts are really compatible um, with, with fulfilling the sense of autonomy, competence, um, and, and relatedness, not so much, but you, you certainly can create goals that, that, um, that uh, lean on relatedness or kind of invite it into your approach, right? If, if you set specific goals that involve working with others who are important to you, whether it's in a team setting, working with a coach, whatever the case may be, uh, tapping into a, a particular social community, uh, you, you can see how some of these concepts start to tie together. Um, so the general idea here, just to kind of recap, short overview, we want to set a really good goal hierarchy, leaning on some of those goal setting concepts we've discussed already. 
we want to cultivate really high quality motivation, which ideally is going to be intrinsic motivation. The way that we cultivate that based on self-determination theory, it's not like we have to fabricate it out of nothing. We don't have to do alchemy and kind of like manufacture this miraculously. You you don't have to subscribe to every fitness motivation Instagram account (laughs) and, uh, yeah, j- just be bombarded with with a wall of posts of, of very young, attractive people being like, why why don't you look like this? If you wanted it bad enough, you would. Boom, you're motivated now. Which exactly, I, yeah. as I understand it, that's that's generally not how motivation comes about. But just just based on the the online content ecosystem that that seems to be the implicit assumption about how to generate motivation, which <laughs> I don't think it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I don't think so. Uh, so instead of doing that, uh, uh, you know, you might get like a little, uh, a little dopamine or adrenaline surge if you go on YouTube and say motivational lifting video, right? Or, or if you follow the folks on Instagram. But probably what you need is to focus on the fulfillment of those psychological needs. And, and so, you know, autonomy. One example that comes to mind, you know, you'll, you'll hear about people who are really struggling to get motivated to do their workouts and it's like okay well what workouts are you doing and they're like well it's great i did this 12-week challenge i have it's not customized at all there are no versions that i can opt in and out of it's just 12 weeks here is a thing to do go do it and it's kind of this faceless thing that just spits out here's your workout priorities here's your your diet priorities And so that's obviously not going to facilitate a high level of autonomy, right? You don't really feel like you have any seat at the table with decision making. So with, I I, I would, I would put a caveat on that. Like, I I think that if it's, if it's something that's like relatively transparent um, and and you can look at it ahead of time and be like, oh yeah, this is what my, what my workouts and like what my nutrition will look like for the duration of this 12 week challenge. Um, and that that is something that I'm like excited about and specifically opting into. Like you're 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 giving up some of the autonomy for like day to day, moment to moment decision making yeah. throughout the process. But you you were still like exercising it on the front end. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't think that that's like completely divorced. But but if it, if it's the sort of thing where just you know you you saw online like hey I should do like whatever this thing is like whole 30 75 hard like whatever i i don't know much about it but like people say it's good so like you know fuck it i'll I'll give it a shot you get like two weeks in and hate it and it's like hey why am i not still motivated to do it it's like well you know you 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 didn't actually want to do any of the stuff like maybe you want to make some more of the decisions for yourself but this process has instilled in you the feeling that if you don't follow this like perfectly the whole time um like it's binary either success or failure and and that that goes back to like flexible versus rigid cognitive restraint um but yeah like i i do think that i i do think that sometimes that can still kind of meet that that autonomy need if there was like a, a sufficient level of like informed consent on the front end uh versus just kind of of diving in blind and hoping for the best. Yeah. So again, like I strategically structured that sentence of if you're struggling with motivation and you're wondering why, and you're kind of locked into that kind of, so if it's not a problem, it's not a problem, you know? And there are, like you said, definitely scenarios where 
there's a high level of autonomy because you made a very thoughtful and intentional decision to begin a specified program, yeah, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying you should never be on a set program that I don't believe that at all. Mm-hmm. But um, like you were getting out with the second example where it's kind of just like a generic program and you're just like, well, you know, there's a bunch of ads for this on whatever social media site. I guess I'll try it. That's not a particularly volitional act of of opting into that specific program. It's just kind of, eh, we'll see what this is all about, right? And so maybe you do that and love it. Um, that's totally fine. But if you are in it and you notice, I just can't get motivated for this, it's very possible that you need something with a little more autonomy. And autonomy falls on a spectrum, right? So there have been um, there have been times where I've worked with clients who have really, really high needs for autonomy, you know, uh, for them to really thrive. And so I have to, you know, be mindful of that. And so when we're doing program design between blocks, it's got to be a really, you know, back and forth two-way conversation when we're saying, okay, plan another training block, let's put our heads together. And then sometimes when the block gets put together, it says, okay, you know, third accessory movement for this, uh, for this workout, you want to go with A or B, you know, or other, right? You know, so you, you can start to add some level of choice because autonomy, what, what you'll find is that some people, if you give them too much autonomy, it's really... Uh, it backfires because it can be very uh, daunting, a mm-hmm. bit intimidating. So autonomy has to be scaled to the individual. So it, it's not that preset programs thwart autonomy as a as a rule, but you have to really take stock of what am I currently doing? Do I feel like I have the appropriate amount of autonomy for me? Because I've also had clients who, if I say, hey, yeah, you know, third accessory lift, uh, you know, pick A or B. It, it's like, you know, kind of deer in the headlights. Like, I I want you to tell me what to do. That's why I got a coach, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it's important if, if you're a coach listening, you have to be able to accommodate both perspectives. But yeah, with autonomy, it has to be a totally individualized thing of where am I at now? What am I doing? Is it possible that I need something where I have uh, more decision-making power and more ability to kind of volitionally really shape the direction that we're going here? Uh, competence, that, that, that's another one where it's got to be really individualized, right? So uh, obviously, it, it's so easy to think of examples for this, but with competence, we have to hit that sweet spot. If you take someone who's a super advanced lifter, you know, they, they're saying, hey, I, you know, I, I took second at nationals last year. I really want to take home the win this year. If you give them just like a super basic generic program, they're obviously not going to be happy about that. That's going to crush their motivation. They're going to be like, why am I, this is like not an appropriate thing for someone at my level of development, right? Uh, Conversely, if you have someone who's like, hey, I'm trying out this fitness stuff. I just got a new gym membership. It looks like they have the things I need. And you give them the plan that should be for someone who's making a run at nationals. Like that's a horrible plan, you know, like like there's a mismatch between what they're ready for and, and what they're what they're getting right. So with competence, you have to really make sure that as you're selecting uh, goals or programs to facilitate those goals, you have to figure out like where am I at and how do I select things that are appropriate so that I feel really good about my competence level. You know, it's something that really is advanced enough for someone who, with my level of experience. You know, you don't want to be doing something way too basic for yourself, but you also don't want to just throw yourself in the deep end and feel totally overwhelmed. And like, I bit off so much more than I could chew here. Right. 
um, again, either either side of that, you're gonna you're gonna be really thwarting that that need for having you know, that, that sweet spot where what you're doing is matching, you know, what you're ready for and you feel a high level of competence. If you're doing something too basic or something too advanced, it's going to threaten uh, that, that kind of perception of competence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then relatedness, uh, there, there are many, many different ways that you can try to, you know, there might be someone who, like for me, I've never trained with a partner. It's ne- never been something that's interested me, works for me very well to be my own coach and train alone. That, that's how I've done it forever. Uh, that's just how I work and that's fine. But you will find some folks who take that approach and at a certain point they say, I just feel like totally alienated and isolated. I feel like what I'm doing, I thought it would feel more meaningful, but I don't have anyone to like discuss it with or share it with. Like I'm I'm just, I feel like I'm on an island here. Yeah. And, and, and that can be really... Uh, detrimental for cultivating intrinsic motivation. And so sometimes it can be as simple as, you know, I've been doing my own thing for a while. I think I want to work with a coach who has some some skin in the game. Uh, or I think I want to get a training partner, someone that we can kind of go back and forth and push each other. Or I want to join some kind of online community where we can talk about our training, our nutrition. Um, you know, there, there's so many different, you could join a, a an actual club that exercises together or or a recreational sport team. So many different ways that you can try to fulfill that need for relatedness. But at the end of the day, what we're getting at here is, you know, go ahead. So, so some something that reminded me of is maybe, oh, it, it was it was pre-pandemic, but not too far pre-pandemic. So, yeah, you know, that that kind of changed how how a lot of people interacted with gyms. But but prior to that, like like before before COVID kicked off. Um, just like group exercise classes were having a huge moment in the sun in the fitness industry. Like there, there were whole gyms popping up where it's just like, yeah, we're, we're doing the group exercise thing, like small groups, um, thing, things like body pump and Zumba in, you know, places like lifetime fitness, the YMCA, like those, those were blowing up, getting super popular. Um, and I remember stumbling into a to a discussion that people were having in a in a Facebook group for like sciencey personal trainer type folks, um, and and they were just they were just going in on Zumba, and they're like, man, like how how the fuck can anyone do Zumba? Because like, dude, you're you would burn way more calories in in the period of time if you just hopped on the treadmill or went for a run. Um, you know, there, there's a bit of a calisthenic component, but that's not going to build much muscle or strength. This is like super ineffective. Uh, all of these people who do Zumba are, are going to stop within like a month or two once they, once they, uh, fail to see the results they're looking for. Like this, this is so stupid and bad. And I, I can't understand how anyone does this in the first place or would certainly keep doing it. But yeah, like it, it goes back to relatedness. I mean, dude, uh, how many... How many adults have like a a robust network of friends? Uh like especially outside of the workplace and like immediate family. Like I, I think I think a lot of people just feel like kind of lonely. And if you ever stick your head in a Zumba class, I mean, people are having fun. Like there's there's upbeat music, you're you're doing a bit of dancing with with people of a of a similar demographic cohort. And then like before and after the class. You just like meet people and talk to them. And so like Zumba is certainly not my jam. Like I've done a Zumba class, fucking hated it, never went back. 
that is that is not a type of exercise that appeals to me at all. But like the 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 idea to me of just like expressing bewilderment of of why someone would like that and what they would get out of it. It's like yeah, you're doing it in a in a big room of of happy people and then like you have conversations with with people before and after, make friends and say like, "Hey, uh this was a good Zumba class on Wednesday. I'll see you on Friday." Like that that feels great to a lot of people. Um so so yeah, it it's not a th- that shouldn't be a surprise. But yeah, l- like you mentioned, the the level of of relatedness uh, that, that people need in general, and, and certainly for exercise goals, varies a lot person to person. I, I'm not the the large exercise group uh, uh, type of person, but um, uh, unlike you, like I, I need to have either a training partner, a small crew, or just like be going to a gym where I just know everyone and can strike up conversations between sets. Um, the the only times in my training career that i that i haven't been able to like reliably find the motivation to train consistently um were the times when i was just like completely trying to go it alone either either like going to a gym at a time when lindsay wasn't also training with me um and it was like you know a commercial gym where people are just wearing their headphones you're you're it's hard to meet people hard to have conversations or um, when I tried to just like solely do like the solo workouts by myself in our basement. Um, yeah, like I, I just, I don't know. I would do it for like a week or two and be like, yeah, this is fine, whatever. And then like most of the time, I'm very excited to go work out. But I would find after after a handful of weeks, I was like, eh, there, there's other things I'd rather be doing. Like, eh, maybe I'll skip this workout and, and then just uh, just kind of fall out of the groove. And and in hindsight, it was, I think, just like purely due to relatedness, because I, I had all of the autonomy that I that I could have wanted. Um, certainly didn't affect my my sense of competence. But it's just like, yeah, I, I I don't like doing anything alone. Like I'm I'm a pathologically extroverted person, uh, and and that extends to to working out. Like I I want to have someone there who like even if we're not doing the same workout, just just to just to chat with, just have a conversation with. Um, but yeah, so that, that definitely falls along a spectrum as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I was just thinking, I, I, uh, was talking to someone who had just been to a Zumba event and they were, they had never been in that world and they just kind of stumbled into it and they were like, Whoa, that, that is an awesome community. Like, yeah, like it was like the, the happiest group of people who were just having a hell of a time. So yeah, sometimes we kind of struggle to like for someone like me who, you know, two people in a workout is one too many for me. The <laughs> idea of doing a group workout setting, I'm just like, oh, I would yeah. hate that. But I mean, hey, to each their own. So what you want to do here, uh, set a great goal hierarchy. So now we know what is the actual, you know, we talk about motivation. Well, motivation for what? It's the elements on our goal hierarchy. What we want to do is not manufacture intrinsic motivation, but just make the right conditions so that can manifest. And so we can cultivate that, that intrinsic motivation. The way we do that is by taking a look at these psychological needs. Do, am I supporting my own autonomy, competence, and relatedness? If I am, those three factors should all be pointing toward, uh, you know, the cultivation of some really high quality motivation. And so whenever I'm talking with somebody 
and they say, you know, I'm, I just can't get motivated. I, I really can't. I don't know what it is, but I can't. Usually what I do is I say, let's begin by auditing self-determination theory. Let's just look at these three psychological needs and figure out, is there any spot where we have a mismatch, where, where the things we're doing are not adequately supporting the right level of autonomy, the right level of competence, the right level of relatedness? Because, I mean, like I said, you put me in a group of six people working out. I'm going to hate it. I want to do it myself. You're, you know, out on an island. You'd much prefer to have, you know, a small group of folks who, who you, you know, meet up with, right? So what you have to do is audit what you're doing relative to your goals and figure out, is there some element, some psychological need here that is not being met? If that's the case, you, you need to address it and figure out, okay, how are we going to change our approach to actually fulfill that psychological need? Sometimes these people who are experiencing a motivation or just really low quality motivation, they do this audit of self-determination theory of these psychological needs and they say, no, I'm good. Like check, check, check. We're all good with all three of those. When that's the case, then I take it one step up the chain and I say, let's go through this goal hierarchy. Let, let's figure out if perhaps we've got a misalignment here where the goal hierarchy made sense when we formed it but perhaps we've drifted away from it and it's no longer really aligned with what what you value, the things that excite you, no longer aligned with your priorities. When I'm troubleshooting motivation issues, that's my process. I start with, with psychological need fulfillment and then I work back to the goal hierarchy to see if we need to make some adjustments. Now, there may be instances... Um, well, actually, let me skip ahead here. Um, so we've got our goal... We are addressing our psychological needs so that we are cultivating intrinsic motivation. That's all good. Uh, but in order to actually achieve goals within our hierarchy, it's not just writing them down and feeling motivated, right? We have to actually go out and do stuff. And usually that is going to involve uh, modification of some behaviors. You know, we might be changing some behaviors. We might be dropping some behaviors. We might be adding some brand new behaviors, but we need to have some kind of model that incorporates how do humans set themselves up for successful behavior change. Now, there are many models that seek to address that, but my favorite is the COMB model of behavior change. So that's an acronym, an acronym COM-B. Now, just a point that I want to make here. When you are developing an acronym, your dream is like, okay, I want a nice acronym, short and snappy, but the dream is that it forms a word, right? I mean, that's the best. If you can get your acronym to form a word, you're golden. They had it. They had it, yeah. Why would you put the hyphen in there? Just call it the comb model. I just don't understand it. Comb is a word. You could just use it. But anyway, it's not relevant to the theory itself, but I was just like, man, you you had like a one foot putt. Just tap it in the hole, you know? Yeah. But nonetheless, aside from the nomenclature, it's a very robust, very solid theory of behavior change. And the reason I like it is motivation is really the cornerstone. It, it is the central element. So what's really nice is, you know, self-determination theory the main, the reason that we're fulfilling these psychological needs aside from good vibes is because they help lead us toward really high quality motivation 
which leads us right into this combi model of behavior change where motivation is the cornerstone. The idea with this model is that there's a direct link between motivation and behavior. Motivation promotes, you know, uh, the type of behavior change that you wish to implement. But there are also two other factors to consider, capability and opportunity. And those are a little complicated because capability and opportunity both directly affect behavior, but they also affect motivation. So motivation is at the center of this model. It's being impacted by capability and opportunity. And then all three have a relationship with driving behavior change. So that that's kind of the general uh, overview of the model. And so what's nice about that is now we have a really nice, uh, in my opinion, kind of a unified framework where we can start putting some concepts together. So we're going to tie it all together. Before I do that, uh, probably a good idea to actually define these things, right? So motivation, we already defined. Um, behavior change, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. We want to change some behaviors that are pertinent to various elements in our goal hierarchy. Capability, that refers to having the skills, knowledge, psychological capacity, and physical capacity to engage in a given activity. Opportunity refers to all the factors that lie outside the individual that make the behavior possible or prompt that behavior. So, for example, we're talking about having access to resources, uh, a suitable environment that is conducive to behavior change. Uh, social support would fall under the, the realm of, um, of opportunity. So what we're talking about here is, you know, we've got our goals, we've got our psychological needs being met. Now we want to take stock of our, our capability and opportunity. Are we living in an environment that is conducive to changing the behaviors we want to change? Do we have the tools that we need? Do we have the resources that we need? Do we need to move around our schedule? Do we have the social support that we need? Um, so you, it, am I literally physically capable of doing the things in my hierarchy, whether it's physically capable, psychologically capable? Um, you know, are, are there things that, you know, am I setting myself up for things that I truly have the capacity to, to accomplish, right? And so what you want to do, kind of this final step as you're putting together goals, or my my approach to putting together goals for a new year, this is the last step is, are we, are we being mindful of these additional elements that ultimately are going to set us up to either succeed or fail when it comes to actually changing behaviors? Um, so I will say, you know, when, when it comes to um, capability, so there's a lot of overlap here between capability and competence, but I don't think that they're quite the same thing, you know? So like when I think of core competencies to do something, it's like, do you have the skills and knowledge? And that would fall under, uh, you know, capability for sure. Um, but there are some instances where I think there's a, a little divergence between competence and capability. So one example that comes to mind, I've talked about on the podcast many times before, um, you know, I, uh, I would, um, when training, so I've got like a hip abdomen injury issue thing that I've been training through. It totally messes with the types of exercises I do for lower body training. Not worried about it, not catastrophizing. You know, there's going to be a day where it's all good to go. Not a big deal. But I did run into a situation where like, you know, my typical training program, I, I certainly felt competent putting together a training program that would help me meet my goals. But because of some of the injury issues I was working through, 
I didn't really feel capable of implementing the program as it was written, right? Mm-hmm. So competence wasn't the issue, but capability kind of was, right? Yeah. And so then what I had to do was kind of rearrange some things to say, okay, well, I can put together a program within my gym environment that is, uh, you know, more well aligned with my current physical capabilities that will keep me, you know, away from really high levels of discomfort. You could also look at that and say, well, maybe we should, uh, instead of rearranging the program, um, and staying at the same gym, maybe we'll go more on the opportunity side and say, perhaps you need better equipment to help you train around what you're dealing with. Right. So then you could say, well, in order to give myself an opportunity to really succeed with these behavior changes, I'm going to switch over to a gym that has more specialized equipment that really helps me kind of work around some things. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about capability and opportunity, it's just assessing what do I want to do? What am I trying to do? And am I really setting myself for things that are uh, within my grasp, things that are realistically, you know, achievable, things that I'm capable of doing? And have I really um, given myself the opportunities to succeed? So like another one that comes to mind is like, you know, you might have enough knowledge about food and nutrition to say, yes, I absolutely could track everything I eat by hand uh, and, and use that to kind of change some of my dietary behaviors. But it is possible that doing that by hand is such a pain in the ass that you just won't do it. Like it's just, there's just enough friction there that you're like, yeah, like I, I have the capability, but, um, yeah, yeah, I have the competencies required to do this, but man, this is a pain in the ass. That's where you would say, okay, well, one way that I can kind of enhance my opportunity to leverage that skill set is to use an app that makes this more convenient. I think macro factor would be a great option, but you get the idea, right? Yeah. The question is, are you surrounding yourself with tools? Are you rearranging your day, your environment to just make this easier on yourself, right? So what that leads us to is kind of this unified model where before we talk about motivation, before we talk about behavior change, we need to have goals, right? Because what behaviors are we changing? What are we getting motivated for? The goal hierarchy sets the stage for all of this. But then once the goal hierarchy is set, we need to start out with the first level of kind of auditing within the framework of self-determination theory. Are we supporting our psychological needs? Uh, are, are we fulfilling those needs of autonomy, competence, and relatedness uh, so that we can cultivate intrinsic motivation relative to our goal hierarchy, right? And if that's the case, that's good. We move on to the next step. We start thinking about behavior change, and that's where the COM-B model comes into play. And we say, do I really feel like I have all the capabilities and all the opportunities necessary to actually change the behaviors necessary to start doing this stuff within my goal hierarchy? If not, you need to make sure that you're seeking out whatever kind of support and resources you need. If those support types of support and resources are not accessible, then that probably need, means that you need to revise the goal hierarchy so that you can, you know, if your goal hierarchy puts you in a position where you need things you don't have access to, that's not a well-designed goal hierarchy because it, it, it's not going to be feasible to actually make that happen, right? So when I'm just getting started, that's my process. Goal hierarchy, self-determination, COM-B model. And now we should be in a situation where we feel very well equipped to modify behaviors and to really attack this goal hierarchy with a really high level of motivation and enthusiasm. That's exactly where you want to start. 
Now, at some point in the goal striving process, very, very likely you're going to run into challenges, friction, problems, etc. Um, and and sometimes it's it's stuff that you wouldn't expect. Sometimes it's just like, oh, you know what? I moved from one apartment to another, and I'm I'm just off. My eating habits have changed a little bit. My you know social habits have changed a little bit. My my getting to the gym is a little harder or a little easier than it used to be. So every now and then, whether we expect it or not, we're going to run into some things where we say stuff's a little bit out of whack here. You know, things aren't going as well as they used to be. Uh, and when that's the case, I work backwards through this higher through this kind of unified model, right? So instead of going goal hierarchy to self determination theory to Com B, I run it in reverse. I start with Com B and I say. Is there some kind of capability or opportunity shortfall that I need to act upon here, right? And I start there because that's usually the easiest thing. Like sometimes it can be so simple as, um, oh, what I need to do is rearrange my schedule a little bit to make these workouts more feasible. Like sometimes capability and opportunity are way easier to modify than any of the stuff further down the chain. Or, or something as simple as like, hey, I, I used to have a job that had a 30-minute commute one direction. Now I have a 30-minute commute the other direction. The gym I used to go to was right in between where I live and my old job. I could just go there on the way home from work. But now I have to go to work, drive 45 minutes to the gym, 15 minutes back home afterwards. Uh, yeah, but that, that's, that's an opportunity thing. And there might just be a gym. 15 minutes between your your new place of work and where you live and it's like ah just get a get a new gym membership switch over and you know you you've solved the problem yeah yeah but you you might notice that there are just these little sources of friction that you're like oh there's like one resource that would cost me $18 that would just solve this problem entirely right like sometimes you will find those those situations where it's like well that that's a lot better than completely revisiting my entire goal hierarchy, right? It's a little bit simpler. We're still on the same track. It's just a little, a little band-aid that'll actually do the trick, right? Yeah. So I start out by just evaluating capability and opportunity. Are those my issues? If so, usually that's a good thing because we can intervene on those uh, generally pretty easily uh, and kind of uh, make some quick, some quick changes. Now, if it's not a capability or opportunity issue, that means we're probably no longer in the Com B model. It might be a motivation issue. And if it's a motivation issue, then I run it in reverse. I go straight back to self-determination theory and those psychological needs. And I say, okay, competence, autonomy, relatedness. Is it possible that we have a shortcoming or a shortfall in one of these areas? I put a lot of thought into it, try to figure it out. If so, great. You've identified the issue, you act upon it, and then you keep going, right? Sometimes you go through the combi model, capability, opportunity, you don't see any any fixes. You say, no, nah, no, nah, it doesn't look like the problem's here. You go into self-determination theory, competence, autonomy, relatedness. I'm not seeing anything that, that really sticks out to me here. When that's the case, sometimes you got to go back to the goal hierarchy and say, is it possible that this thing has come out of alignment or have my priorities and values just kind of drifted entirely away from this thing where this is still a, a cohesive goal hierarchy, but it's no longer the right one for me because I'm over here and the goal hierarchy is over there, right? In terms of just priorities and values and, and what we want to emphasize. So long segment there about uh, behavior change, about motivation and how to incorporate it with evidence-based goal setting strategies. But 
I do think it was an important conversation to have because like I said, to me, this kind of feels like an unofficial part two. Like you talk about goal setting, but there's so much more that needs to happen in order to put that goal hierarchy into action. And I think the key things to focus on are motivation and behavior change. Unfortunately, in the fitness world, there's the the ratio of motivation content to useful or evidence-based motivation content is is not great. Um, so yeah, I, I'm certain that as the New Year's comes up, you're going to see a bunch of stuff. It basically just boils down to, hey, hey just just do it and, and don't complain. Have you thought about wanting it more? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. you got to want it more. Have you tried? Well, then try harder, yeah. you know? So I, I wanted to give people um, a look at, you know, like actual science stuff about like, you know, empirically driven theories um, that 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 have been, you know, studied pretty rigorously about what actually helps a person cultivate motivation relative to their goals and what actually helps people kind of systematically think through if I'm trying to change behaviors and they're not working what might be going on here? You know, what might be the issue that actually needs to be resolved? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I, I hope people find it useful. Do you have any uh, New Year's resolutions while we're on the topic? Oh, geez, I don't, I don't do New Year's resolutions. I, you know, I, I think I more so evaluate my life and, uh, you know, what, what I want to change. Um, if I yeah if, if i have any big grand goals for myself or whatnot after allergy season because for me <laughs> for me new year's is the worst time to set a, a new fucking goal because like one i get really bad seasonal affective disorder i don't i don't have any motivation to do anything in january yeah like, w- j- wake me up in april exactly well, no well, don't yeah. don't wake me up in april because <laughs> One once the once the the position of the earth shifts enough that I'm getting enough fucking sunlight on my skin to start synthesizing vitamin D and serotonin again and whatnot. That's roughly the time that the same thing happens to the plants, which then create pollen. And I I also just have tragically bad seasonal allergies, just horrendous. And so generally that starts laying down mid to late may and so yeah like late may going into june that's when i'm like okay like i've got probably a solid like five months where, I, where i'm gonna be feeling pretty good um and so now let, let's let's evaluate my life and and see if i want to set any big goals but yeah n- new year's resolutions absolutely not that's not that's not my game you're on the uh the kevin lavroni schedule for goal setting yeah uh did you ever hear about that? I heard that back in the day, he would often just take six months off. Yeah, to to tour with his band. Yeah, and he'd be like, oh, I'll, I'll pick it up when the Olympia is about six months out. And yeah. then he would just it completely explode and look like Kevin Lavroni every time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm... I'm uh, do, do you have any? Not really. Um, I think I'm... I, I'm not a big New Year's resolution person, but but it is a good time to kind of take stock and say, okay, what what do I want to really emphasize, you know, in the in the upcoming year? Um, I'm I think I'm gonna hit the gym like really hard, 
I haven't done that in a while, you know, I think I'm going to hit the gym really hard and I'm excited to see, uh, you know, I'm not like in the, am I in the worst shape of my life? I don't know. I might be actually now (laughs) that I think about it, but, uh, I'm certainly not in the best. Uh, so I, I would like to get, uh, you know, get back to a spot where I'm feeling pretty good about it, uh, and just performing well and things like that. So uh, I definitely want to do that. Uh, going to do more video content in the upcoming year. I'm excited about that. And also, um, there's a really nice dog rescue by my house. And I've done all of the preliminary steps to to volunteer there. Uh, and so I definitely want to emphasize getting back into volunteer work this year. Uh, I used to volunteer a ton. I, I, I coached a Special Olympics powerlifting team for like five or six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like with COVID, the whole program was just like, yeah, we're, we can't really do this. Um, and so th- that's definitely been missing. Like I, I can kind of tell when I, when I haven't been doing that. So I want to get back into it, but I think I'm going to start, um, rather than doing that same exact volunteer work, I think I'm going to do the, the stuff at the dog shelter. And, uh, I like the work that they're doing. Uh, they save a lot of uh, a lot of pups from, you know, the, the shelters that euthanize and things like that. So, uh, really important work, but they need a ton of help. They have a lot of dogs. So yeah, I think that'll be fun. Like I said, I've done all the preliminary steps to make it like to be allowed to do it. Um, but I just haven't started yet because December is a crazy time. Yeah. Travel coming up and things like that. I didn't want to start and then say, okay, see you in like, you know, six weeks or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I was like, well, I'll get through Thanksgiving, get through the holidays, and then and then pick up with it. So that's it for me. But expect an extremely jacked version of me in about uh, 13 months. Hell yeah. Well, let's put a time frame on it. Like any good smart goal, right? <laughs> uh, all right. So I think that does it for this episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Um, as always, Thank you so much for joining us, for listening, and we will, be, we will be back in a week with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.